I always find it incredibly sweet and kind when a member of the youth group grabs me right before the sermon and says, good luck. (laughs) Very kind. I do appreciate it. I don't know if you noticed during the Lord's Supper that the uh, matzah bread tasted kind of like dust. Uh, It wasn't because I'm preaching on Sodom and Gomorrah and we were making a connection. But I know that it looks kind of, there's, there's like pieces of it all over the ground up here. And that may be off-putting to some. If it is, sorry. But it, it is kind of an interesting reminder as we prepare to hear the word of the Lord and open that together of what we've just done. And so, um, see it for what you want, but uh, it, it is something to look out at you and share what I'm about to share with you uh, and see that. So it is quite special. Uh, This is the word of the Lord from Galatians 3. There is no longer Jew or Greek. There is no longer slave or free. There is no longer male and female, for all of you are one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs, according to the promise. Let's pray together. God, we thank you for this good and joyful morning in the midst of so many things around us that are neither good nor joyful. We thank you for your promises. We wait on their ultimate fulfillment with eagerness, with hope, sometimes with impatience. But we do trust you, and we put our trust and our faith in your goodness yet again today, in Jesus' name. Every generation thinks that theirs is the greatest. And some members of each generation thinks that the one who went before them is the absolute worst. And then as you get older, you think that the one coming up behind you is the absolute worst. This is just kind of life, generation to generation. When I was a kid, R.E.M. had a major hit with the song, It's the End of the World as We Know It, and I Feel Fine. It looked at everything from hurricanes to governments to reporters, declaring that the world was coming to an end, at least the world as we know it, but even at that, choosing to feel fine. But this was not a clarion call to just give up, nor was it a decision to fly blind. Instead, it's what some people have called the second naivete. Not to be naive, like a child, but to embrace a second wave of fighting with all of our might on the side of justice, not because we do not know how dark the world can be, 
But instead, just the opposite. That we know, as the people of Jesus, we are fully aware of this dark world, but we believe that we are active participants in the new creation. To illustrate, I can't stand the Weather Channel, and yet I check it every day. I keep hoping beyond hope that maybe one of these days they're going to get it right, which being you know, in Houston, this has to be one of the hardest places in the world. So maybe, maybe they should just come on every single night and say, you know, tomorrow it might rain, might not, and then they should throw in kind of a caveat. It's going to be humid, and then we'll say, yeah, they got it right today. The second naivete. It's like the story of Red in the Shawshank Redemption, who looks back on his early days, his young life, and all the hopes and dreams that he had, and then spending the majority of his life having those hopes and dreams just fall apart around him. To the point where he says that hope is dangerous. Don't hope. It'll only let you down. But then finally coming back around to the possibility and then completely embracing hope. Not as some pipe dream, but as a way to live your life. That is the second naivete. It was a stretch a couple of weeks ago to read the story of the flood and Noah and the ark as a story of hope. I get that. But it will be an even bigger stretch to hear the story of Sodom and Gomorrah as a Noah's ark-like act of God and creation and hope and new creation. But that's precisely what we're going to do. I will warn you that this is a tough story, and so don't try this at home. When we meet the cities of the plain, including Sodom, in Genesis 13, it has lots of water. And it is even described as like the garden of the Lord. And you know what we're supposed to picture when in Genesis 13 we meet Sodom in the cities of the plain and it's introduced to us as lots of water and like the garden of the Lord. You know what we're supposed to picture, right? Just a few chapters earlier we met a garden with lots of water. Everything was just perfect and pristine. And we don't think of Genesis 13, we certainly don't think of 18 and 19, what we're about to read in a moment, as looking like the Garden of Eden. I say, Sodom and Gomorrah, what do you picture? Dust, you know, Newark, just, just something that just looks like I don't want to be here. That's maybe what you picture when you hear Sodom and Gomorrah. You don't picture the Garden of Eden with this beautiful lake and flowers and giraffes walking around. You don't picture that, but that's what Sodom looks like when we first meet it. It is the Garden of Eden all over again. The Garden of Eden at its pure 
an unsullied best. But we are also told when we meet this place that it is impure and wicked. You will never find a more wretched hive of scum and villainy. Creation at its best filled with creation that chooses darkness over light. On the outside, it is picket fences and blue velvet, but on the inside, it is depravity of the lowest order. But God did not destroy Sodom and Gomorrah because God was in a bad mood that day. God also did not destroy Sodom and Gomorrah in order to equip future generations to just stereotype all gay men the same way. That is not what this story is about. If you read the whole story, which you're about to, the real sin of Sodom and Gomorrah was an entire people who came to objectify the other, the stranger. And then what's even worse than that, than objectifying the other and the stranger, is that they objectify their own people, their own family members. So it's not either or. It's not, well, they didn't welcome the stranger. Well, they kind of do. And then they don't. And then their own people get caught up in it. Their greatest sin was lazy inhumanity. A failure of welcoming God's creation as God's creation. They took what was supposed to be an act of hospitality as welcoming all in the created image of God, but then further reducing people to objects. Objects no longer able to choose. Men and women alike were forced to do something against their will, to become something against their will. And I'm going to just quit preaching for a second and go to meddling. Because all we have to do today is look at the dark reality of human trafficking around the world and in this very neighborhood to know that unless we begin to not only speak out, but then also to act, we are no different than what we are about to read in Genesis 18 and 19. So, Genesis 18, beginning in verse 16. The men set out from there, and they looked toward Sodom, and Abraham went with them to set them on their way. The Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do, seeing that Abraham shall become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him? No, for I have chosen him, that he may charge his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice, so that the Lord may bring about for Abraham what he has promised him. Then the Lord said, 
how great is the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah and how grave their sin. I must go down and see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me. And if not, I will know. So, the men turned from there and went towards Sodom while Abraham remained standing before the Lord. Then Abraham came near and said, Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Let's suppose there are 50 righteous within the city. Will you then sweep away the place and not forgive it on behalf of the 50 righteous who are in it? And far be it from you to do such a thing, to slay the righteous with the wicked, so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be that from you, shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? And the Lord said, if I find at Sodom 50 righteous in the city, I will forgive the whole place for their sake. Abraham answered, let me take it upon myself to speak to the Lord. I, who am only dust and ashes, suppose five of the fifty righteous aren't there, will you destroy the whole city for lack of five? And God said, I will not destroy it if I find forty-five there. Again, Abraham spoke to God, suppose forty are found there, God answered. For the sake of 40, I will not do it. Then he said, oh, do not let the Lord be angry if I speak. Let's say 30 are found there. God answered, I won't do it if I find 30 there. Abraham said, well, let me take it upon myself to speak to the Lord. Suppose 20 are found there. He answered, for the sake of 20, I will not destroy it. And then he said, oh, don't let the Lord be angry if I speak just once more. Let's say 10 are found there. And he answered, for the sake of 10, I will not destroy it. And the Lord went away when he had finished speaking to Abraham. And Abraham went back to his place. By the end, that's the end of Genesis 18. If you don't believe that's actually in the Bible, it's really there. That is Genesis 18. As strange as this story may seem, it is a story of hope that God will always preserve a remnant of those who choose to walk in the light. That even when you find yourself smack dab in the middle of Sodom and Gomorrah, God is saying, even today, I will never leave you, I will never forsake you. God is still with his people who choose life. And this is not a promise that nothing bad's ever going to happen in life. But it is a promise. God will never leave us. Never forsake us. I like a particular Carl Sagan quote that goes, If you wish to make an apple pie from scratch, first you have to create the universe. Now, what is probably one of the worst stories in all of Scripture, but not for the reasons we've been told. 
if you really listen to this story, you are going to see far worse things than the way this story is often reduced. So, right when Genesis 18 ends, Genesis 19 begins this way. The two angels came to Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting at the gateway of Sodom. When Lot saw them, he rose to meet them. He bowed down with his face to the ground. He said, please, my lords, turn aside your ser- uh, to your servant's house and spend the night. Wash your feet. Then you can rise early and be on your way. They said, no, we'll spend the night in the city square. But he urged them strongly. So they turned aside to him and entered his house, and he made them a feast and baked unleavened bread. And they ate. But before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, young and old alike, all the people, to the last man, surrounded the house, and they cried out to Lot, Where are the men who came with you tonight? Bring them out to us, so that we may know them. Lot went out of the door to the men, shut the door behind him, and said, I beg you, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. Look, I have two daughters who have not known a man. Let me bring them out to you, and do to them as you please. Only do nothing to these men, for they have come under the shelter of my roof. But they replied, Step aside. And they said, This fellow came here as an alien, and he would play to us the judge? And we'll deal worse with you than with them. Then they pressed hard against the man Lot, came near to the door to break it down. But the men inside reached out their hands, brought Lot into the house with them, and shut the door. And they struck with blindness the men who were at the door of the house, both great and small, so that they were unable to find the door. Then the men said to Lot, you have anyone else here? Sons-in-law, sons, daughters, anyone you have in the city. Get them out of this place, for we are about to destroy the place because the outcry against its people has become great before the Lord, and the Lord has sent us to destroy it. So Lot went out and said to his future sons-in-law, who were about to marry his daughters, get up, get out of this place, for the Lord's about to destroy the city. But his sons-in-law thought he was joking. Okay, so everyone take a deep breath. And let's focus on first things for a moment. Let us be the grace and peace of Jesus. Let us pray to the Creator. Equip us to do the grace and peace of Jesus. Let us pray to the Lord. Help us to say the grace and peace of Jesus. See, because what we are about to read is the rest of the story 
is yet another Noah-like story of destruction in creation. And this isn't the last one in Scripture. Many more will come. The destruction of Jerusalem that Jeremiah laments, and then their return from exile to rebuild the temple is again another story of destruction and creation, like a rainbow in the dark. It is, here's what God creates, here's not what God created. Here's a reboot, and here's God's creation again. It is only this big picture survey of God's story. When you know the whole scope of the story, that we actually can have eyes to see these bizarre early stories from Genesis as stories of hope, only when we embrace a second naivete of hope would we dare to look at the current state of politicians and celebrities and massage parlors in our own neighborhood and actually be able to come in here with a straight face and give thanks to God for the beauty of creation, which has to be a reminder to participate actively in God's creation. Not just to speak out against the things in our world and in our neighborhood, but to actually do something. Be active about it. You can't read books about this and expect that to change everything. It's not enough to just post on Facebook. You have to actually get out there and do something about it. And I'll tell you, right here, some of us aren't sure exactly what to do, which is all the more reason to start investigating. What can we possibly do about this? So here's what happened back then. And be careful not to read Genesis 18 and 19 too much through the filter of back then. You know what I mean? Because this is happening all around us today. So here's the rest of the story, starting in 1915. When morning dawned, the angels urged Lot, saying, Get up, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, or else you will be consumed in the punishment of the city. But he lingered. So the men seized him and his wife, and his two daughters by the hand, the Lord being merciful to him. And they brought him out and left him outside the city. When they had brought them outside, they said, Run for your life. Do not look back or stop anywhere in the plain. Run to the hills or else you will be consumed. And Lot said to them, Oh no, my lords, your servant has found favor with you and you've shown me great kindness in saving my life, but I can't run to the hills. I'm afraid the disaster is going to overtake me and I might die. Look, that city is near enough to run to, and it's a little one. Just let me escape there. It's not a, is it not a little one? And my life can be saved? He said to him, very well, I grant you this favor too. And will not overthrow the city of which you have spoken. But hurry, escape there, for I can do nothing until you arrive there. Therefore the city was called Zoar, which means little. 
the sun had risen on the earth when Lot came to Zoar. Then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah fire and brimstone from the Lord out of heaven. And he overthrew those cities and all the plain and all the inhabitants of the cities and what even grew out of the ground. But Lot's wife behind him looked back. She became a pillar of salt. Whatever you do, do not stop reading the story there. That is where the story leads into why this story is in Scripture in the first place. And by the way, I'm glad that the first word of 1927 is Abraham, because I don't know about y'all, and I don't know if we're supposed to say this about Bible people, but I just don't like Lot. I just don't like him. Abraham went early in the morning to the place where he had stood before the Lord. And he looked down toward Sodom and Gomorrah and toward all the land of the plain and saw the smoke of the land going up like the smoke of a furnace. So, that was that. When God destroyed the cities of the plain, God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities in which Lot had settled. Abraham represents how to start over again. And you know, if you know, we're a few weeks into this series, you know Abraham's story. He's not perfect. His story begins with systematic lies, but he's not perfect. Abraham represents how to start again, just like the flood and after the flood, just like Sodom and then after Sodom. Only this time in the story, instead of you know, there being puddles all over the ground and the ground is muddy, now it just has a bunch of smoke coming out of it, but it's the same story. Because it's a restart of creation. We start the story of Sodom, a place described like the garden of the Lord, but the garden has been polluted. At God's hand, the place was as pristine as it could ever be. But at the hands of humanity, it had become a place that no longer welcomed the stranger, which is one of those sins of all sins right up there with idolatry. Does any of this sound familiar? Where you look around so much in our world and think, wow, that is beautiful. 
That's the handiwork of God. It's the handiwork of God's creation. You ever feel that way? You ever, you ever look at you? I walked to the mailbox a couple of days ago, and there are all these flowers blooming, and it, I was overwhelmed by something as simple as flowers by the mailbox. And then I ride down Westheimer, and I think, man, alive. You ever feel that? Welcome to Sodom and Gomorrah. This is not back then. We see today there's much bad in the world. But then we choose not only to see what is good, but also to act on what is good. We as Christians must never think that our work is done. Not as long as we live in a world that behaves like a world. Not as long as God keeps promising and inviting us to partner in this project of good creation. Now here's the truth. Politicians are going to keep giving speeches filled with empty promises. Let us not waste our faith on them. Celebrities are going to keep acting in ways that treat others like objects. Let us never do the same. Let us be and do and say the grace and peace of Jesus. It's the end of the world as we know it. I feel fine. We were never promised a perfect world in the first place. But that is a call to act. We, as the church, will always stand on the side of true justice that believes every single person is created in the image of the one true and living God who to this day equips us to create and journey by the love and redemption we know in Jesus. So let us do, let us act every day as the grace and peace of Jesus Christ. So help me God. Amen.